Good morning. Let's pray together. Your word tells us, Father, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Father, I pray that through your word this morning, you would equip us and send us out of here confident that you have made us competent for the things that you have ordained that we will face this week. And I pray that our looking at your word, our hearing it, our applying it in our lives will make us all the better instruments for you to do your work this coming weekend to bring glory to your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been uh, studying the book of Ezra, and today we come to a point in our study of Ezra where there is a 16-year stoppage in the work of rebuilding the temple. Uh, Solomon's temple was, was glorious, but that was destroyed when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. Uh, but here, the, the people are returning after the Babylonian captivity and under Zerubbabel, rebuilding the temple. Uh, they got a start. They built the foundation, but then local opposition came and they stopped building. Uh, it tells us in Ezra 4 that the local opposition made them afraid to build. And so we see a work stoppage that lasts 16 years. God then sends the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to get the people moving again. That's where we are in the story. So we're, we're breaking today from the book of Ezra, per se, and looking at the brief two-chapter book of the prophet Haggai. Okay, there's the context. Now, there's a story that comes out of the Korean War about a group of American GIs who rented a house and hired a Korean houseboy to cook for them. And he was a great kid, and they loved to tease him and play practical jokes on him. Uh, He took them all in stride. Uh, they would nail his shoes to the floor so that when he would go to get his shoes, they'd they'd be stuck to the floor. They would uh, put grease on the handles of the stove. Uh, They would balance buckets of water over the door. You know, all of those sorts of things. And this little guy just just took it all in stride, cheerful, never uh, trying to get revenge on, on the pranks they had pulled. And finally, these GIs got so ashamed of themselves that they came to him and they said, we're sorry, we, we've been pranking you and, and that's going to stop. We're not going to be doing those things to you anymore. You've been such a great little guy. And he said, you mean uh, no more nail shoes to floor? And they said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. He said, no more sticky on the stove handles? No, no more. No, we won't be doing that anymore. No more water over a doorway? No, no more water. And he says, oh, okay, good. Then no more spit in soup. Uh, It is interesting to watch how people behave when things are not right between them. At the point in the book of Ezra where there is this 16-year lapse 
peace in the building of the temple, things are not right between God and his people. Now, God has not been spitting in their soup. Far from it, he has been trying to send a clear message to them, trying to make it plain to them that something is wrong in their relationship with him, and they're just not getting it. He's been withholding his blessing, and they haven't perceived it. They've been planting their crops, but not getting much of a harvest. They have tried harder and yet seen no improvement. And they don't realize that their crops are failing because God wants them to turn back to him. That is the consistent message of the prophets. Turn. Turn, you're going the wrong way. Turn around and come the other way. You need to do a 180. Uh, I think I might have told you before the Hebrew word for repent uh, is shuv. It, it literally means to turn. Shuv. I, I had a, a professor in seminary, uh, Dr. Walter Kaiser, who, who said the prophets wanted to give the people a shuv in the right direction. You know, get them to turn around, do a 180. You're going the wrong way. Now, what is it they need to turn from in this instance? They have prioritized God right out of their lives. They've lived the way a lot of people live now, uh, with God at the margins of their lives rather than at the center where he belongs. Now, since the crop failures haven't had their desired effect of getting the people to turn, it's time for a more direct message. It's time for a prophet. And so Haggai shows up with that same consistent message, shuv, turn, turn around. So God sends Haggai, and we're going to look at his brief book this morning. It's one of the last books of the Old Testament. If you haven't found it yet, I don't know what the number is, but if you get to the Gospel of Matthew, turn left. Go back three books. Uh, Go back past Malachi and Zechariah. You'll arrive at about a two-pager, the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that the book was written in the second year of King Darius of Persia. That would make it 520 B.C. Now, you'll recall the story from the last couple weeks. They got a start on the, the building of the temple. They got the foundation going. And then this local group offered their help. And Zerubbabel turned them down flat and offended them greatly. Why did he turn down their offer of help? It was because they were idol worshipers and they wanted to build idol worship right into the very design of the temple so that there would be this religious pluralism and they could incorporate all of the idols of all of the surrounding nations that they worshipped into the worship of the one true God. Zerubbabel turns them down flat, gets them angry at the Israelites, and they cause trouble for the Israelites. And Ezra chapter 4 verse 4 tells us they made them afraid to build. Afraid to build. So leads to the 16-year work stoppage. By the time Haggai arrives on the scene, the the building of the temple has, has been 
uh, halted for 16 years, and Haggai makes clear what God has been trying to communicate to his people, where they had strayed and what they need to do in order to get back on track with him. There is one phrase that occurs five times in this brief book of Haggai. It is this, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Five times. New International puts it this way, give careful thought to your ways. He's inviting them to perceive something that they're not currently perceiving. He's telling his people to think about what's happening. This, these crop failures you've been experiencing, what's really going on there? He, he wants them to gain spiritual insight. He wants them to get a clue because they really haven't got one at this point. They've been trying to figure out their own solutions to their problems, and their own solutions just aren't working. So God tells them to look beyond the simple answers that the world has to offer, and he invites them to think about the spiritual reality that underlies all of it, because things aren't always as they seem. Appearances can be deceiving. So I'd like this morning for us to look at three misperceptions of the people that God straightens out here in the book of Haggai. And the first misperception is this. It appears that the reason for the work stoppage is the local opposition, this 6th this century B.C. mafia that wanted to make things hard for them. In reality, the reason is the people's own self-centeredness. It's interesting to compare Haggai with Ezra and find out what's been going on. If you take a look at Haggai chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, here's the message. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The, the Israelites who've uh, stopped working on the thing, it's, it's not time yet. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And you think about that for a second. They're saying, it's not time to rebuild the, the, the temple. And uh, Haggai gives the word of the Lord to them and says, is it time for you to live in paneled houses uh, while my house lies in ruin? And you think about this. How did this ragtag bunch of refugees get paneling for their houses? You know, the cedar paneling, it's, it's, it gives a nice smell to the house, keeps the insects away. and that sort of, How did they get that? Well, then you turn to Ezra chapter 3, verse 7, and you see. It says this, So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, Sidon and Tyre. What do we know about Sidon and Tyre? Famous for growing big cedar trees. Gave all of these things to those people to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Cedar trees, how about that? What were they supposed to be used for? The building of 
the temple. What were they used for instead? For paneling their houses. The people had been pilfering the goods intended for the construction of the temple and using them for their own comfort. What self-centeredness does is it takes our focus off of God and it puts it right on ourselves. And we look at them and we say, well, you, you stinkers, you, you self-centered people, you. But we need to look in the mirror as well and say, do we act self-centeredly ourselves? We think about the times maybe we blow off worship knowing that God is still worthy. You know, nationally, uh, church attendance continues to decline, and, and people who keep track of, of regular church attendance, uh, when they have different categories in terms of regular and irregular church attendance, regular church attendance used to be like four Sundays out of five. People now consider three Sundays out of five to be regular church attendance. It's just falling off. And we take the focus off of God and we say, I think I'd rather sleep this morning. Or we keep our talents to ourselves instead of using them in God's service, knowing he's gifted us with spiritual gifts to be used in the body of Christ. And yet we can keep them to ourselves despite his design for us. Or we may hold back the first fruits from our labor, though we know that he has provided all that we receive. Why do we do those things? It's because our focus is in the wrong place. Instead of on God, we put it on ourselves. And when our focus is on ourselves rather than on God, we lose something. We lose our boldness to act on our faith. And when opposition comes along, we shrink back. We have a book in our library. I would have brought it to show you, but then it wouldn't have been in our library anymore. So somebody might just want to run out and check it out as soon as we're done here. It's a book by Ed Welch called When People Are Big and God is Small. It's a good read. I would recommend it to you. When people are big and God is small, you're afraid to take risks for God. You play it safe, and you don't accomplish much for him. But when people are small and God is big, you step out in faith because you know you can trust him, and you can dare great things for him. So how big is your God? And what are you willing to risk for him? Where's your focus? It wasn't the presence of the local mafia that kept the people from rebuilding the temple. It was their own self-centeredness. And it took their focus off of God and put it on themselves. When your focus is on God and when you see him big, you'll be bold for him. But when it's on yourself, you'll be concerned for your own comfort and you won't risk anything for God. So God sent the prophet Haggai. He rebuked them for their self-centeredness. He got their focus off of themselves and back onto God. Now, how do I know that? It's because the enemies were still 
there when the people decided to resume building. Yet they built because they had gotten the focus where it belonged, back on God. And they dealt with the real enemy, and that's the enemy within, their own self-centeredness. There's a second misperception. It's this. It appears that the solution to the shortages they've been experiencing is to hold back on giving to God. In reality, the solution is godly priorities. Godly priorities. Look at verses 5 to 11. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. There's that phrase again. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Shortages. People tried working harder, but nothing seemed to help. The shortages were still there. What they didn't realize was that the shortages were happening because the people had forsaken God. He was withholding things. He was withholding his blessing, causing the shortages in order to turn them back to him. In times of shortage, our first natural inclination is to try to find more money, right? What do we do when there's too much month left at the end of the money? Uh, we look for more money. We uh, might uh, try to pick up some overtime hours. We might pick up a, a second job. And if that doesn't work, what comes next? We look for things that we can cut, things that we don't think are essential. And often one of the first things that gets cut is what we give to God. The problem is that we identify wrongly what's essential and what's not. What's essential is what we give to God in response to him. I think about an important discovery I made uh, a long time ago in my own budget. It's the distinction between fixed and variable expenses. Budgeting is simple. You take your income, and from that figure, you subtract your fixed expenses, and you arrive at a number that gives you what you can spend on your variable expenses. Fixed expenses are those, those expenses that don't change from month to month. They're fixed. Uh, maybe your mortgage or your rent, uh, your insurances, life insurance, health insurance, home, car, those numbers that remain the same every month. Those are your fixed expenses. Those are your givens. 
And the variables are the things that do change from month to month. Your groceries, your utilities, gas for the car, that sort of thing. Uh, which of those two categories is flexible? It's the variables, right? Those are flexible. You can adjust them. Which category of those two do you put your giving into? I remember uh, early on in my marriage, I had put my giving in the variables category. And then all of a sudden, it just dawned on me, wait a minute. This is non-negotiable. This goes first. Um, it, it's not something that, that I determine after I've spent what I want on other things. This is a fixed expense. And too often, we treat our giving like a variable expense. We give God our leftovers. When we're done spending our money on the things we want, we see what's left over that we can give to him. But God's standard isn't leftovers. God's standard is first fruits. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. When you honor the Lord with your first fruits, your giving becomes a matter of faith. It's not legalism. It's a matter of faith. It's saying, I'm going to trust God and give the first fruits right off the top. You give first to God, recognizing that it all comes from him, trusting that what remains will be more than sufficient. And that makes life an adventure. It makes life a matter of a walk of faith. You want a little adventure in your life? Larry Burkett was a financial counselor who had a radio broadcast, and he made a bold offer. He offered to pay the bills of anyone who followed godly priorities in their giving, in their stewardship, and couldn't pay their bills. Now, how'd you like to put that out on radio? But he said he never got stuck. When we will trust God with our finances, all of life will become an exercise of faith, a practical demonstration of what we say we believe. And as you see God prove faithful again and again, your faith will grow. But what happens when we hold back the first fruits? God holds back on his blessing. Look at verses 9 through 11 again. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought. I have called for a drought. On the land and the hills, the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. God withheld his blessing. When we hold back the first fruits and choose not to live by faith, we miss out on blessing from God. But what happens when we step out in faith and give the first fruits? God pours out blessing 
that we can't hold. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 to 11 says this, Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. That's the problem with the exiles. They had been robbing God. And what they needed to do was to realign their priorities. There's a Christian camp that my family and I go to every year that was founded in 1958 with a very simple motto, God first. God first. And that simple phrase is prominent around camp. You can't miss it and you can't forget it. It's a simple reminder of our priorities. God has richly blessed that camp through the years because they've got their priorities straight. God first. There's a third misperception that shows up here in the book of Haggai. It appears that the temple under construction won't stack up to Solomon's temple. In reality, it will be better because little can be much when God is in it. Look at chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Solomon's temple that we read about earlier this morning. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet Now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The early chapters of 2 Chronicles talk about Solomon building that magnificent original temple. It was spectacular, nothing but the best from one of the wealthiest rulers ever to sit on a throne. And God blessed it with his presence. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, we read about when the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant into this newly finished temple. We read about that earlier in the service. The Lord filled the temple with a cloud, and the priests couldn't see to do their job. They had to clear out because of the cloud. 
And as magnificent as that temple was, and as much as God blessed it, the thing I noticed when I read the account in 2 Chronicles is that Solomon invested six more years in building his palace than he invested in the building of the temple. The question that arose in my mind is this. Proportionately, did Solomon give more or less than these returned exiles who had so little to give? God assures his people in Zerubbabel's day that the temple they build, not with the vast resources of the world's wealthiest king, but with the things that come from their own meager resources, this temple will be filled no less with the glory of God. People may not walk by that building and say, wow, would you look at that? Look at what they have built. But they'll walk by it and they'll say, God is in that place. Isn't that what we want here? For people to drive by River Hills Church and go, I'm hearing things about what God is doing there. God is in that place. God tells them in Haggai chapter 2, verse 8, the silver and the gold, they're, they're mine. They're not Solomon's, they're, they're mine. In verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Solomon's wealth was in the last one. God's glory would be in this one. Little can be much when God is in it. In Acts chapter 17, Paul tells the Athenians that God doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And then Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that God does live in us, our bodies, our temples of the Holy Spirit. And you may be thinking about yourself, the temple that you live in, the way people were inclined to think about the temple they were rebuilding in Ezra's day. You go, huh, not so great. You look at yourself in the mirror, you go, not so great. You compare yourself to others like they compared the temple they were building to Solomon's temple. And you go, I'm not so great. I'll never be used by God. And if you think you're too ordinary to be used by God, that you're not smart enough or attractive enough or well-positioned enough, or rich enough, or gifted enough, or skilled enough, or old enough, maybe too old, or too ordinary, think again. The key to your being used of God is your being yielded to God. Little can be much when God is in it. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in Detroit who taught teenage boys. He had one 17-year-old teenage boy who kept falling asleep on him on Sunday morning. So he decided to visit the shoe store where this boy worked, where he was stocking shelves. He met him there at the shoe store and led him to Christ. That 17-year-old was Dwight L. Moody. Moody became a great preacher 
And in his broad speaking, he traveled to London to lead some meetings, and he met a scholarly pastor who didn't think very much of his methods. That man, F.B. Meyer, came to travel and speak alongside of Modi. Meyer spoke at a conference and challenged his audience to be willing to be made willing to give up everything for Christ. There's a great concept. Are you willing to be made willing to give up everything for Christ? And a struggling young pastor was there named Wilbur Chapman. And Chapman heard that message, and it changed his life. And he started having evangelistic meetings of his own. A professional baseball player who had the day off came to one of those meetings to see what the commotion was all about. And he heard the gospel message from Wilbur Chapman and put his trust in Christ. And that man was Billy Sunday, who became a great evangelist. Sunday invited a man named Mordecai Ham to speak at one of his meetings in Charlotte, North Carolina. And there, a high school student named William came, who swore he'd never come to one of those meetings, but some friends of his were planning on going to one to disrupt it, and he wanted to see what would happen. But he heard the gospel message, and he trusted in Christ. And that boy, William, was William Franklin Graham. Billy Graham, who has spoken over the course of his ministry to 2.2 billion people. And I am one of them. I came to Christ at a Billy Graham movie when I was 12 years old. And I am so grateful for an ordinary man named Edward Kimball who didn't consider himself too insignificant to make a difference for God. Little can be much when God is in it. Whether it's a temple made of stones or a temple made of flesh, don't underestimate what God can do through you. That applies to all of us, the littlest kids among us. Don't underestimate what God can do through you. The oldest among us, don't underestimate what God can still do through you. Things aren't always what they seem. There are spiritual realities in operation that are not evident to the people around us, and sometimes they're not evident to us. But they are real nonetheless. How do we come to see them? How do we come to perceive them? We only learn about them in the context of a relationship with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We gain spiritual discernment in a relationship with God. So let me just ask you a few questions as we close. Question number one, do you have a relationship with God? Do you have a personal relationship with God? 
with God? Have you trusted in him for your salvation? Have you admitted that you are a sinner in need of a savior? Have you invited him to be that savior and to live in you? Do you have a relationship with him? Don't leave here without knowing that you belong to him. I'll be up front after the service, would love to talk with you and pray with you. But spiritual realities won't make sense apart from a relationship with God. Question number two, are you learning of him? Are you learning his ways? It takes time to learn them. The spiritual disciplines of, of reading his word and praying and fellowship and, and worship among other believers. Question three, are you yielding yourself to him? Your priorities, your gifts, your talents, yourself. When we yield ourselves to him, he will use us for his glory. You'll find some questions for further thought in your program. I hope you'll make use of those throughout the week, maybe in your small group, uh, that we might be able to put some feet to the passage that we've just looked at and live it out for God's glory. Pray with me. Father, we give you ourselves in response to this word from Haggai, and we pray, Father, that we would be discerning of the spiritual realities around us. Help us to understand what you're doing and then to gladly join in with you in the cause of Christ for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.